After listening to Jeremiah and reading the, or hearing the psalm sung, I almost didn't want to get out of the pew. (laughs) So you'll be relieved to know that I'm not going to preach on them, on those readings. We got a little more Jeremiah ahead, but uh, that's not the, that's the blue picture. Although uh, the gospel today is somewhat baffling, and the reason they pay the clergy the big bucks is is that they've got to preach on texts like this from time to time. So that's what I intend to do. But first I want to call your attention to something about uh, church life that we don't do. I don't preach much on what I'm going to describe, and maybe I should, but it's an important piece in the liturgy. Uh, that today actually has some connection to what uh, the gospel has to say in one sense and why it's important. So uh, bear with me a little piece of liturgical history. When Constantine said that the Christian religion was legal, the legal religion of the Roman Empire, the celebration of the Christian liturgy moved now into the public buildings of the Roman Empire. So the basilica style of architecture, which we often now associate with churches, was actually Roman civil buildings. And so you began to have uh, these celebrations take place. And often, certainly in the city of Rome, they were rather elaborate affairs. And for the first uh, two or three, four hundred years of Christian history after the Constantinian settlement, often for the big days, the Pope would celebrate the Eucharist in a particular church in the city of Rome. It was called a stational church. And when I was in Rome the first time as a student, I lived in a pensione right across the street from Santa Sabina Church, which is a fourth century church, and it's the stational church for Ash Wednesday. Pope Paul VI reinstituted these stational liturgies, so every Ash Wednesday the Pope is at Santa Sabina for the Ash Wednesday liturgy. Anyway, the point is that uh, now that you have public celebrations and you have bishops and clergy and choirs and people all coming in in processions, they have to come in. So in the Christian liturgy, the coming in is called the entrance rite. Right? And every Sunday, we have an entrance rite at 9 and 11, and we come in, bong, you hear the bell, the sanctuary party comes in, Mark is noodling on the organ, or you could be singing Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison, or Gloria in excelsis. We sing a hymn, an entrance hymn, when we get to the step uh, after the confession, and then we come in and we conclude the entrance rite with something called the collect of the day, spelled C-O-L-L-E-C-T, but it comes from a Latin word collecta, that's why we say collect, and it means to gather the thoughts and the prayers of the community who have been milling around. Any of you who've ever worshipped in a Mediterranean country know that the style of worship and the behavior of the congregants in, in Italy, for example, is substantially different than we Northern Europeans. There's a lot of milling around and, you know, people snap doing stuff. 
So I was at a liturgy once in Rome where there were four masses going on simultaneously in side altars, the main liturgy, a priest hawking the diocesan newspaper, a kid getting <laughs> photographed because of the last mass she had had first communion, all going on at the same time, you know. <laughs> so uh, that's the way it is. Anyway, the collect kind of puts together uh, our thoughts. And today we read the collect, grant us, Lord, not to be anxious about earthly things but to love things heavenly. And even now, while we are placed among things that are passing away, to hold fast to those that shall endure through Jesus Christ our Lord, the usual formula. Now, that, I think, has some connection to the gospel. In the days when there was only an annual lectionary, in other words, you read the same readings every year, uh, often the, collect, the, the connection was very clear, but because we have a three-year cycle, sometimes the collect will have something to do with the readings in one year or partly in another year and not at all in another year. So we're in year C of the, of the uh, three-year cycle, and here we have this gospel from Luke. And uh, I think it has something to do about uh, what is the relationship between earthly and heavenly things? How should we think about our possessions? What is the, um, how are we supposed to behave in our business life? What are some of the things that we do uh, with regard to this? Um, sometimes we have many Bible studies at the finance committee meeting of the diocese. I've been on the finance committee now for eight or nine years, so we get, we get assigned stuff, and I read this gospel a lot. And all these corporate guys kind of go, geez, uh, I never knew that was in there. <laughs> you know? So they uh, say, well, what, I don't understand what it means, and I say, I'm not sure I do either, but I think we ought to read it once in a while. So let me take a stab at this and see what you think. Uh, let me say first again about Luke. Luke uh, was a doctor. He was a Gentile. The community out of which his gospel came was Gentile, or mostly Gentile. He probably was in a community of people who were fairly well healed or were in, in the level of, of uh, the economic life, like physician and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, his Greek is the best in the New Testament. He's the Shakespeare of the New Testament. So uh, it's a very high-quality Koine Greek. And I think that the situation on the ground in about 85 A.D., for that community and others probably as well, was now we're here. Uh, Luke believed that it was part of the plan of God that the church come into being. And so the, the fancy language, the delay of the parousia, the second coming, is part of the purpose and plan of God because we as the church have a role to play in God's plan for the cosmos. And so we now need to reflect about our common life together. And we've come to the conclusion that we've been converted in religious terms, many of us, but we still have our same old occupations and livelihoods. And what is the relationship between what it is we do in those and our Christian faith and belief? 
And should we live lives of complete renunciation? Or somehow should we understand that each person is called to serve God in whatever aspect of life they find themselves, in whatever vocation, in whatever livelihood, and how do they understand right relationship between their converted sense of who they are and what God has done in them through the presence of the Holy Spirit? Luke is the great um, you know, a theologian of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament speaking about God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen you and to give you the, the um, enthusiasm, the stamina, the insight to be able to meet the challenges and the opportunities in front of you. So how do we understand that? And so he has uh, taken uh, way more uh, sayings of Jesus about economic and social issues about economic disparity, about the right use of possessions than any other gospel writer. Just as, since he was a doctor, he has taken and, re and reported more healing stories than any other gospel writer because he's interested in uh, Jesus' healing, healing people. So today, he, gives, he, uh, has, he has Jesus speak a parable uh, that can be sound very baffling about the dishonest uh, steward. And briefly, the story is this guy was a bad manager and his boss, his, his uh, uh, master, uh, told him that he needed to make a an accounting of all of the things he was in charge of because he's going to be fired. And so the guy goes to some of the people who owe the master money. And he said, how much do you owe? A hundred, cut it in two, write 50 on the bill. A hundred here, write 80 on the bill, and so on. And so he is commended by the master. There's no indication, by the way, that he saved his job. <laughs> but he's commended for his shrewdness. The word in Greek for shrewdness is not unlike the word for faithfulness, pistoiouen. So it means uh, for his faithfulness to do this. Now, here's the thing. We say this guy is a crook. He's knocked down on his boss, as my grandfather would have said. And uh, he's uh, through this, and he's, why is he being commended? It is possible in the ancient Near East that what the steward told the people who owed his master money was, take my commission off of this. You get what I'm saying? You know why tax collectors were not loved? They never are, are they? But in, the ancient, in the ancient Near East, first of all, they were Jews or people in Palestine, we're talking about, who were uh, in the pay of the Roman government. The Roman government told the tax collectors, here is the tax that you are to collect, get, to give to us. If you collect anything over that, it's yours to keep. You know, it's like a restaurant guy who knows where a whole lot of money in a restaurant's gonna go out the bar. So usually a lot of times you'll make the bar the place where everything adds up, but you'll also tell the bartender, uh, I want $25 poured out of every bottle 
If you can pour $32 out of every bottle, then you keep the seven, okay? So that way we keep it, or I'll buy a new car every year as a, as a perk. So that's how, that's how we'll make sure that you're not gonna steal from me. It's possible though in this particular case that the um, steward said, I'll just not take my commission. One of the things that we could assume that he did was not legal, right? Or was dishonest, let's put it that way. And the other thing, one isn't. In fact, the other one is a reflection of survival instinct, isn't it? And what did he say about what he was doing this for? When I'm out of a job, I still want to be welcome in people's homes. I still want to have friends. I still want to have a network. You know? I want to be able to hook up with people if I need to to see, well, now this didn't work, or I kind of, you know, maybe there's something else for me here and I can get a little help. So I'm using my beans to uh, maximize my position in a bad circumstance. And so he's commended for this. Jesus concludes the parable. The other stuff is commentary after verse 9. He concludes the parable after verse 8. He, can, he concludes the parable by speaking uh, about various ways to understand the relationship between possessions and how we understand what that means. And he ends, of course, with the whopper that you've heard over and over again, you know, you cannot uh, make friends with God and in the old translation, mammon, right? Nobody knows really what in the world mammon means. It appears three times in the New Testament. In Matthew's Gospel, you cannot serve God in that, right? And in Luke's Gospel, in these two unrighteous mammon. People think it means property that has been obtained through wicked means, right? Or unjustly in some ways. Or an overweening attachment to stuff which constitutes a barrier uh, for spiritual growth. That's what, that's what Jesus would believe. So Luke is trying to, to say, you know what, the community that I'm part of uh, and my listening to, uh, to the, or reading the sayings of Jesus that have been collected through the oral tradition, through the written tradition, uh, I don't think we're talking about everybody being called to live a life of complete renunciation, in other words, to get rid of your stuff. But clearly we are being called to have a right relationship with stuff. And the default position is to err on the side of not too much stuff and getting that down. Now we have a problem in this culture with stuff. I think about this myself. You know, I grew up in a family business. I have a business background in my Merton past. And I, I w I've always thought, well, if we all just decided tomorrow we're going to get rid of our stuff, we're just going to ditch it. We're all living lives of renunciation and simplicity. You know, a lot of clergy just absolutely 
drive me nuts with some of this stuff. <laughs> and 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 they they'll they'll uh, get you know particularly when they're starting out we're starting out we're going to seminary they get all their clothes from the goodwill, you know of course at Mishota House we wore this stuff we didn't have to worry about it you know they have one thing, but. They're uh, ready to go that way, and uh, my view of that is, if we all did that, who's going to buy the stuff? And if a lot of us are in jobs that are either making the stuff or selling the stuff, how are we going to survive? What are we going to do? I mean, this baby is a huge thing, isn't it? It's just a huge thing. So trying trying to figure out how to how to do that. Uh, may be a major problem. I actually think it's possible. I'm idealistic enough. By the way, Christian people, if there's anybody in the world that should appear to be wildly idealistic about human nature and about the possibility that, that social change is within our reach always if we begin to see how we do things in a way more congruent with God's purposes, it can be done. But at the same time, thinking in extremes is not always the way to do this. And so I think Luke is at pains to say, uh, you can't serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and um, stuff that has been acquired through means that may be somewhat suspect. I was watching on MN, it just came into my head, MNN, it was on some one of these stations. It wasn't Fox News. But they had, they were, uh, there was a, she was a Republican Party strategist. And she was all over uh, the president and somebody else because they didn't understand the business community, because the business community is all about profit. Now, when I was raised, that meant that you were on the side of the mainspring of human progress and that the genius of the American people resided in that market system by which everybody received their livelihood and by which we would continue to go from strength to strength. The only downside of that was there was no self-reflection about behavior or very little and about the human costs. And there are many things within this system that make sales and services stuff that uh, it needs adjustment. And there's a certain amount of wicked mammon going on here. So Christian people need to be uh, somewhat, stand at a critical distance from this. But I have never thought renunciation or stepping away or deserting your responsibilities to be productive, to use all of the talents and the abilities that you have to be successful cannot be used in such a way as to be able to do both. There's no reason why people shouldn't enjoy the fruits of their work and their abilities. They need always to include uh, serendipity in this, however, in my opinion. All of us have been the right person at the right time in the right place. We all have. So we know that sometimes it isn't merely just us that has produced this burst of success, 
it's been you know just a fortunate set of circumstances that have come together our own skills and abilities are one of those circumstances but there are others as well so understanding that may be an important thing Jesus is speaking about um, who are you going to serve and if you put God first I think he's also aware of the overweening idealism of many Christian people who did get into Luke's community too and now have just acted as though they know nothing about business and how to behave with their resources. You know? I mean, the Episcopal Church for many years now has been struggling to bring into its common life a higher level of good governance and to say that it is important for us to be concerned about certain details of how we run things that uh, represents prudent behavior. Shrewdness in this gospel, the shrewdness of the manager is uh, in the original language the word that we would use for prudence and for faithfulness as I mentioned earlier. And if you were alive in the ancient Near East and heard the gospel read to you, Luke's Gentile community, which is Greek meaning Hellenistic, they would have heard that and they would have thought, maybe some of them at least, oh yeah, you know Aristotle. Aristotle said one of the virtues is prudence. That you and I you need to use sound judgment. Prudence is not somebody who is a boring fool. Prudence is somebody who's gained practical wisdom. That's what Aristotle meant, practical wisdom. So that you are able to commend to other people how to do this, right? Eptitude. And this manager actually showed a little eptitude about what to do to save his own neck and to preserve his future. And Jesus is saying, you know what? You've got to look after your circumstances in the here and now. Never mind some other place that you'll just wait to go to. Christians have been very bad with this. They have been, for, for, for many centuries, they have uh, tended to focus people on the fact that don't worry about this, this veil of tears that we live in. We're all going to a better place. Well, does that mean this place has got to fall down around your ears and everybody's going to be on their back? But it's okay that there'll be another place where we can go and all of a sudden, we're going to be fine. Cloud cuckoo land. That's not what Jesus meant. Jesus meant we got to work here now. Luke said we got to work here now. And this is what this means. It is moving to some reflection in the midst of ambiguity. Do you understand what I mean by that? This is an, a yes and no at the same time story. It's very hard. So I think that the lesson this week, if we can weave through this, is to say you and I are called to be prudent. You and I are called to learn how to be in right relation with our stuff. You and I are called that as we grow in grace and that the spirit grows within us to find that the generous impulse in big and small ways comes more readily to us than it had before. That we can be compassionate in our business. That we can find some way to do this where we do the best for the most. That's the American way, I happen to think. It has been for a long time. So if we do that, 
um, maybe we'll have, uh, by our actions, made some sense out of this gospel. Amen. Amen.